Hi there, welcome to this episode of the Skip Meetings Podcast, the podcast for curious professionals embracing the future of business events. My name is Miguel Neves and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Skip Meetings. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Daphne Hopeno, founder of The Vendry. We start off by talking about the importance of a visual portfolio when you're hiring a venue or a vendor for events. We talk about the Vendry's move from a content engine to a marketplace and their COVID pandemic pivot where they focused on creating a community. We talk about why public reviews of venues and vendors are so challenging in the events industry. And we talk about why Daphne thinks planners don't really care about AI. What they really care about is that technology works well for them. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation. I invite you to check out the other episodes of the Skip Meetings podcast. Travel Portland presents a meditation for meeting planners. Close your eyes and picture your conference in Portland, Oregon. Your budget is totally under control. With no sales tax, you've saved thousands, which you spend on a group dinner at one of Portland's incredible restaurants. The food, delicious. Your attendees, delighted. And the glory, all yours. Portland, yours to find, yours to share. Hello there. Welcome, everyone. This is uh, the newest, latest episode of the Skiff Meetings podcast. And today I am delighted to be joined by Daphne Hubino, the founder of The Vendry. Daphne, welcome to the show. Thank you. Daphne, um, we've no I've known about the, the Vendry for a good few years now, but I'd love um, to uh, for you to tell the story of, of how the Vendry came to be and, and, and also kind of your story as it relates to events. I don't think you were always uh, connected to events, but I'd love to, I always ask guests to start where they first kind of understood the industry. And so, for some that's at a really early age and for others that's kind of much later in life. But if you could take us through that journey, uh, that would be a great place to start. Absolutely. So I always, you know, I start by saying I don't, I didn't grow up in this industry professionally and I always want to honor sort of the people that did and, and me as I enter it over the last five years and, and, you know, try from more of a software and engineering perspective to serve uh, the industry better. So uh, I studied engineering in college. I worked at a software company in my twenties. And I guess my first sort of touch of this industry was not from a production perspective, but as a software company, we had a 10 person events team. We were throwing 180 events around the world every year. And I was in a very public role. So I was going to all the events from sales kickoff to conferences to, you know, um, all the field marketing events. And I happened to be very good friends with the woman that ran that team. So put that in the back of your mind, like great appreciation for the value, let's say, to an organization for going to events and producing them. Um, and I will fully admit that I hate this part of my founder story because I think it's sort of a cheesy female founder tidbit, but I was planning my wedding, my husband's French. I was trying to find venues and vendors in France. There's no like the not in France. So I was trying to, I was needing to be very innovative. Like I was using Instagram to see what was tagged where. And that is where from a practical perspective, my brain got deep in this world of sourcing venues and vendors and sort of the new and novel ways that people might go about doing that. Uh, and I, as I was experiencing this on sort of a personal level, 
I knew very early on that I did not feel passionate about sort of building a long-term company in the weddings industry, but I sort of, again, tapped back to that experience in my twenties of, of, you know, going to many corporate events. And to me, since I have more of a B2B background, you know, the idea of focusing on corporate events was a lot more interesting because you have this professional who is repeatedly sourcing, right? Repeatedly planning events and can become more of like an expert in any new technology that is built for them to make their work easier. Um, so this was summer of 2018. Um, I moved back to the U.S. I became really obsessed with the events industry, um, was running around New York City, talking to anybody that would have coffee or lunch with me, again, more on the corporate side. Um, and very quickly, like I would say from the moment I, I first thought about, hey, maybe I want to launch a company in this industry, I think I incorporated like six weeks later and raised my first money six weeks after that. So it was a very rapid um entrance into this industry. And the only other thing I'll say is to add more sort of context to that summer, you know, I don't remember the exact dates, but the Knot and Wedding Wire merged around that time. Zola raised $100 million. So it also felt, me coming from the tech industry, like VCs were putting a lot of money into this wedding side. And even that summer, I remember walking around New York City and it was it was, you know, pop-ups were everywhere, festivals were everywhere, like the experience, experiential marketing, you sort of felt it around the city. And so I just felt like, you know, their brands are putting more money into events and maybe there's an opportunity to serve that part of the industry better. Interesting. And tell us a little bit about that the raising part and meeting with investors. Was that was that an easy thing to do? Is it kind of more from the tech? perspective and then you were kind of convincing them about the industry or were they kind of new about the industry and you were just kind of trying to figure out how to match the tech? So I come from a deep tech background, you know, I have a strong network here in New York, which always helps. And the company I worked at in my 20s for seven years when I was there from pre-product through IPO. And so I just want to, you know, acknowledge that my personal network um, was you know, that I knew very well was sort of eager to see what I would do next and support that financially. Um, and so I raised about $600,000 on just angel checks. And to give you a sense, the largest check was 50K. And so that was just from a lot of people in my network that wanted to be part of whatever I was doing. Um, my first institutional round where I brought on two New York VCs was December of 2019. And what I'll say about raising money for event tech is... There, here, here's how I'll put it. There's a big graveyard of companies. So my our specific area is in helping people source venues and vendors for their events with a much stronger emphasis on the venues. And there's a big graveyard of companies who have tried to tackle this before. And so it definitely took a lot of, you know, convincing them that we had a unique angle on this and we understood why those companies had failed. Um, and obviously getting them to believe us. And we, we were lucky to do that. Have learned many lessons since that uh, <laughs> obviously evolved our business model. For sure. And that's where I wanted to go next. So tell us a little bit about the initial concept, I guess, the beta version or what was yeah. the Vendry originally and how it's developed. So I mentioned Instagram early on, because that's really what piqued my interest was beginning to understand how much 
a visual portfolio of events that either a vendor had been part of producing. So if you know you're a caterer that had helped produce the Met Gala, you know, photos of that event and and I guess the plates in that case, you know, are on your Instagram. Like the 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 visual nature of hiring a venue or vendor, I saw come to life in that these businesses were putting a lot of energy into their Instagram. And I was going to Instagrams to validate whether I was interested in hiring them or not. And um, my husband is an architect. And so I feel like that was very helpful to me early on because, you know, photos of his work are everything for his business, right? That is how he gets future clients, how he gets published. Um, and in the way that House, H-O-U-Z-Z, built a technology platform that understood that portfolios were at the center of how businesses market themselves and built around that in a way that, for example, Yelp doesn't, we aim to build the same for the events industry. So the, the initial interesting thing was, okay, let's build a directory where profiles have this portfolio first approach, very photocentric. Um, number two, from more of a growth hacking perspective, was I noticed, and anyone in this industry would know, you know, when you publish photos of an event that you produced, you being the venue or vendor, you're often tagging the other suppliers that were part of that event. Here's who did production, who did AV, who did decor, whatever. And so there's this crediting behavior happening that I thought we could replicate on our platform and in doing so actually trigger network effects that allowed us to grow. So if, you know, Caterer X uploaded photos of an event, tagged the venue or tagged the production company, we would auto trigger an email to the venue or production company saying you've been credited claimer profile. And so that allowed us to grow really within a viral nature I had, to give you a sense, we launched the platform April 2019. So, so raise the money the summer before, launched the platform April 2019. I ran around the city. I was like eight months, actually nine months pregnant. I gave birth a week later. And so I'd run around the city building relationships with, you know, 30 production companies around the city, got them to upload for free their portfolios. And by December, I hired my first employee in September. By December, we had 5,000 venues and vendors that had claimed and built out profiles in the vendry. So, so that thesis played out. Um, and then we raised money to basically turn this content engine into a marketplace. So we had all these photos, we had all these business profiles, but we'd focus so much on acquiring sort of the supply side. We needed to then turn and build this into something where, you know, you're an event planner at Goldman Sachs, you are using us to source. Um, so we raised a million dollars, bringing on institutional partners to both build a team because it was just two of us and sort of prove that we could bring planners to this platform. Um, and six weeks later, the pandemic hit. <laughs> so we have a very um, curvy story, I think, as I think do many people in this industry. Uh, I will be more brief in, in what happened after that. So that was how we started uh, raised money, pandemic hit, no one cared at all about sourcing venues, very little even on the vendor side. We were like, okay, we have money, we have a small good team, why don't we build a community? And frankly, that came more from heart than head. You know, we had runway and our investors were like, honestly, we have very low expectations for you. <laughs> just do something. Um, and it was just that I'd gotten to know so many people in this industry and they were really suffering. And every single day I was having phone calls with people that would almost, you know, leave me in tears. And I, not coming from this industry, was like, well, I know other people you should talk to. And I'd start organizing Zoom calls where I was like, okay, you guys all have, you know, you're all great people, put you on a call and, and 
allow me to at least connect you with each other. And that really grew. Um, and we started doing, you know, what everyone else did, webinars, um, you know, online discussion forums, and a newsletter, and I can't remember our exact metrics, but, you know, we had many thousands of people joining this community we built. Brilliant. And I think that's a, one of the better pivot stories during the pandemic, right? Um, how is, I mean, what are the numbers now compared to that? Because I know a lot of stories of people that have built communities or created things during the pandemic when there was sort of this need to come together. But then that particular situation seems to have fizzled out somewhat and people don't necessarily communicate in the same way or they're not as available. Has that played out in the same way for you? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is there are so many numbers I could give on, on how big our community is. And I'll, be, and, I'll, and I'll reveal what I mean by that. So during the pandemic, when it was like, what's the size of your community? You know, we could answer that in terms of traffic to our site, although I don't think that, I, I never really answered like that. But, you know, the size of our email list, the total number of people that had ever attended a virtual event, like there were so many different ways for me to answer that question. I always want to answer genuinely, but there wasn't like a single metric that was obvious. Um, people that had just, so what I did, I think at that time was I really anchored on people that have created an account on our platform, because the main reason you would create an account is with some intentionality to be part of this community. Um, you know, exactly like you said, a lot of that community was, I guess, virtual events, right? We were, and, and of every nature from like big, you know, we're inter interviewing sort of an industry celeb to this is a 20 person closed, you know, you're all going to meet face to face and talk. I remember summer of 2021, and we put a lot of energy into these events, man, the drop off rate was so high. And it was like, people were sick and tired of it. It was hot vac summer. What did they call it? It was like the summer that everyone was basically vaccinated. Everyone was going to return to office in September. And I think people wanted to get out in the real world and did not want to be on virtual community stuff anymore. And so I remember our last virtual event we ever hosted, I think was in October, November. It's Karina from IMAX. It was like about hosting trade shows. I think IMAX had just happened. So we talked a bit about that. Um, and then I said to the team, I don't want to do any more of these because honestly it flipped to where rather than being, you know, something that felt like it was driving our business, it felt like we were putting in a lot of energy and then just being super stressed that nobody was going to show up. So I was like, why are we doing this? Um, and so we had to step back and say like, what, what does our, how can we continue to add fuel to our community in a way that serves them and that they clearly want? Um, and we actually only launched our Slack group, I think in Q1 after that. So we had never had like an online Slack group, I think, because during the pandemic, it felt like everyone was doing that. Um, and so we, in a very intentional way and very curated, like we make it sort of hard to get in actually, um, launched this online Slack group and decided to make that the hub of the way our community interacts. Um, and that is really, between our online discussion forums um, and our live events, I would say that is, you know, the two pillars really of our community today. And we have um, 1,200 people in our online Slack group. And so it's not, you know, we're not aiming for like the biggest numbers possible, but we're aiming for like definitely the highest caliber of community possible. And the thing that I'm very proud about there is that every single day 
there's activity in that group. And so I think that we have been able, our goal with community was that it would take on a life of its own and we could be there just as sort of the curators and, and you know, stewards of it. And I think that has totally played out and we add, you know, we grow 10%, 15% month over month. Okay, so let's talk numbers a little bit. So you have 1,200 active in a Slack community, and this is a free community that you curate and you invite people that you know, planners particularly, to kind of talk to other planners. And, Only planners. And is it New York-based or is it global? Yeah. How does that work out? It's global. By nature of us being American, it's mostly Americans. We actually really want to expand it beyond because, you know, then if, I mean, first of all, we, we have sort of a view of being a, global company as much as we can. Um, but then even in a practical sense, people ask questions about planning to produce events in France and Buenos Aires. And I'm like, shoot, we need more people from other countries here to, to help. Um, so yeah, we have 190,000 people, unique visitors to our site every month. And so this is, again, there's like many different ways to look at what is our reach and what is our community. We have, you know, 20,000 people on our newsletter. Um, so different and ways. How many, how many people signed up in, as users, I guess, on the site? I'd have to honestly look that up. People <laughs> sign up. I could look it up. Numbers change all the time. But tell us a little bit about the, um, what it looks like today. Because we've talked a little bit about what you created. And then you kind of pivoted to community. Uh, and as far as I understand, there wasn't really necessarily a business model around the community side yeah. of things. You were just sort of keeping the focus on the potential users, right? So you're keeping involved with the users of the site. And then how does it work today? Did you manage to kind of bring both things together? Yeah. So, you know, we didn't build the community with an eye on ever charging for it. Frankly, as like a venture back company, I never believed that charging for a niche B2B community with the budgets that I know these planners have would, was ever going to be a meaningful revenue stream. Maybe one day I'll change my mind there, but I was like, there's no point in charging. There's not sort of enough money there. And so um, our goal with community was really twofold from a commercial perspective, which was one, just simply brand marketing, right? Like establish ourselves as a go-to resource, get people to know our brand and come to our site. Again, under this idea that we were a resource for them. And then number two, the thing that I'll say through all of our sort of twists and turns as a company is our mission has never changed, which is to be the best venue and vendor sourcing platform in the world. So like it's never, ever deviated from that. That's what I you know think about at night before I fall asleep. And the reason community was actually exciting to us is because it had both the planners and suppliers in it. So to the extent that we could become a destination that both of these sides of the market were coming to, to, you know whatever, do business, get advice. We believed, and this is what we we pitched to investors when we raised another 4.3 million summer of 2021, that we could turn this audience into a more transactional and sort of formal marketplace model. And, and I think that that has very much played out to be true. And so, um, and so what we've done today is look, we raised that money summer of 2021 and that money was all about marketplace. And so, you know, we took a multi-pronged approach to building out our venue and vendor marketplace. Businesses come to us to build out business profiles. We also go out and aggregate data from across the web to build business profiles sort of on, on businesses' behalves. Um, we did a lot from a user acquisition perspective to have good SEO and onboard companies directly. So every week we're onboarding big companies um, to use our platform for their venue and vendor sourcing. And, uh, 
And how community feeds that is that in our Slack group, 90 plus percent of those posts are actually people asking for venue and vendor recommendations. And so as it turned out, even though during the pandemic, a lot of it was, you know, all the all the topics that that event pros were talking about from like mental health to saving their business. Now it's venue and vendor sourcing is 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 nine out of 10 posts. Hey, I need a I think last night was, hey, I need a shuttle company in San Francisco, you know, to like I need a 3000 person venue in you know New York. And so what we can do is we can serve that community by better taking that discussion data and merging it with our database. So if you are part of our community and you search large venues in New York City, well, this is launching sometime around the time this podcast will come out. But if you're part of the community and you're on, say, the Javits Center profile, you're going to see any discussions within our community that have happened about the Javits Center on the profile in the Vendry. So really, community for us has become another sort of proprietary data source that we can blend with our data set to better serve that community, not the general public. That's interesting. Is that, I know you also have the Copilot product, which you launched a while back, we covered, which is, I think, quite clever when you go on to, let's say, the Javits Center site again, as an example, it's a kind of a, what do you call a Chrome uh, plugin, and you get a kind of information about the venue uh, in a quite a, a standardized way, because a lot of websites are very different and the information is always easy to find. So you have kind of, and also I think you get ratings and other information from people on the site I've put on. So you get like the, a feed of information from the site kind of overlaid yep. onto the, the, the site that you're watching, that you're using, which I think is quite clever. I think one thing that we have just really doubled down on is understanding the, all the different data points that matter to a planner when they're sourcing and trying to bring it into one spot. And there are things that we've done that, I mean, I'm 99% sure I haven't seen anyone else do in the industry. One example of that, well, two examples of that. So one is, you know, every single day we crawl over 500 press publishers. So that feature is called industry IQ. And what it means is that from everyone from, you know, BizBash to Eater to Condé Nast Traveler to right now New York Fashion Week is happening. I don't care if it's page six. Page six is listing all the parties where celebrities are going to for New York Fashion Week. And we are basically able to programmatically read those articles, identify which venues or sometimes vendors are mentioned, and then associate that piece of news to their profile. And so what that allows us to do is not just, you know, when you're on whatever, the Ned in New York, which is some trendy private clubs profile, see that all the celebrities like Drake and everyone's doing their party there. So it, it's that level of intelligence. But then we're able to also then better rank and assign labels to venues, like say, hey, this is trending right now. Like Spring Studios is definitely going to be trending on the venue, venue right now because all of the fashion shows are happening there. And so read, you know, how does somebody decide? And, and we can also programmatically understand which venues are new. So when a press article is written saying like new restaurants in New York for the fall, we can automatically, you know, apply that new label to it and tell the reader. So that's one thing we did, you know, and, and just sort of emblematic of how we think about different data sources feeding the search experience on our site. Um, the co-pilot thing you mentioned is us really, really leaning into you know, I mentioned that we onboard Fortune 500 companies to our product every week. And one thing we realized when talking to them all about venue and vendor sourcing is that often they would refer to these internal spreadsheets that they had. 
And so all of them were like, yep, we have our list of where we looked at for sales kickoff last year. And we, or we have like, you know, the executive assistants will have some massive spreadsheet of like private dining rooms everywhere that they share with each other. And so we launched the ability for enterprise to actually upload those notes and files to their account on the Vendry, but in a private environment, just that their coworkers can see. And so when you use something like Copilot, you're not just, you know, when you're on the Javits Center profile, seeing all the data that we have and content that we have, but even your own notes and files from your team. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's all there. Well, I think I think it's a it's definitely a slick product. So so congrats on that. I want to talk a little bit about you. You mentioned that the Slack channel is base is mainly around the um, procurement, right? So finding venues, etc. Yeah. Is that just sort of you think the nature of how what event planners do? I think it's the nature of the types of questions that event planners have on a very regular basis. So when I talk to other people launching communities, because a lot of people and this, you know, a lot of companies want to own a community, right? Usually it's like a software company wanting this to be a special entry point to their customer base. But my question to them is always like, okay, think about who is in your community and what is a type of question that you think they will repeatedly have that others in the community could help them with? And honestly, I even think about the founder communities I'm in, and it's actually usually a sourcing question like, hey, does anybody know an SEO specialist? Hey, I need a lawyer that can help me with my trademarking. Like, it's usually that. And then once in a while, you'll have like, hey, I'm struggling with remote work culture, you know, who has advice? Um but these very tactical types of questions work best in a situation where this audience is often like basically sourcing something. Um, so I don't think it's the main type of work that they do, but I think it is one of the main utilities that an online sort of discussion forum like community can serve. Um, so yeah, like favorite shuttles in San Francisco, need recommendations for an event in Anaheim, decent hotel in San Francisco, you know, these are, but then you have one here with a woman who said, Hey, is anybody else having a tough time receiving um, responses to RFPs from hotels recently? So it's not only sourcing, but, but sourcing is a lot of it. Yeah. I, I, I think that's an interesting angle because essentially it's kind of saying it, it, it's really useful, right? It's really useful to have this community to help you with pragmatic sourcing, right? Which is kind of like the, the top kind of challenge. And then thought leadership, if you want to group things in sort of that perspective is important, but it's not the thing that kind of focuses mm -hmm. people or kind of gets people to ask questions, right? It does on, on much less of a kind of amount. Yeah, it's really, it's not really about thought leadership. You know, people will use it, you know, people ask about, hey, can anybody share the comp bands for their team? Or like, how are you proving ROI to, to your executives? But it's very tactical. And I think the other thing it proves just with us, you know, as we try to build the best sourcing solution in the world, nothing can beat a personal recommendation, right? Like maybe it, like people, it's such a high pressure decision and, you know, you're, you're going to lean on a trusted source before you go to like Google. And, and the thing with our industry is there aren't, it's not like the knot or something where you have online reviews 
I think it's actually tough to get reviews in a B2B sense because it's such a small industry and nobody wants to be seen as like the shit talker, you know, that's sorry, I don't know if I can say that, but <laughs> that's, um, that's, that's, so that's you know, writing about uh, a vendor venue they might have to work with again in the future. Um, and so fr from the minute we started this, a lot of people said, hey, can you have reviews? And we spent a long time trying to figure out how to build reputation in this experience. And, and our community has basically been the answer. That's really fascinating. So you're kind of saying reviews aren't quite right in this in this world, at least. But but having a sort wants of reviews, but it's tough to get people to write them. So we've looked at uh, Glassdoor a lot because they've sort of cracked the, this interesting challenge of reviews. There's gamification that they've added that maybe we could replicate one day. But you know, there's a reason that Cvent and you know, I don't even know who the big venue sourcing platforms are, but like they don't have reviews in a B two B sense because it's a small industry. Like, hey, we hosted our upfront here last year and the team was awful. Like, you know, you're not going to write that. You have no incentive to really. Yeah. And, and things people move around jobs very quickly as well. So it's not yep. really, uh, not really great. And that's why everyone's like in secret WhatsApp groups and text chains. And so, you know, yep. trust has been a foundational pillar of this community. And, you know, obviously that's a little tough to scale. And I'm happy to report that like 99% of what is shared in our community is our positive experiences with venues and vendors. Um, but uh, but they still it still needs to feel like a trusted peer to peer group. Yeah, and so that has lots of levels to it and layers, right? Because I think what you're saying is you don't just want to produce a great spreadsheet with all the venues that are out there. You want to have a great listing of as many venues and, and kind of vendors as you can, but you also want to have a way of talking about them and having kind of private or semi-private discussions about them or private within your team or kind of planner only discussions. And, but you, it's weird because at some point you also want the vendors involved. So kind of having those different layers is quite challenging to find that right balance, right? We have a lot of data sources that feed our vendor and venue profiles of which the business's content is one, but like, you know, if there's some, you know, if there's Fire Festival V2 at a convention center, like that news will appear on their profile and they can't remove it, right? So it's like, it is a holistic view that we try to paint of what the planner would find if they Googled it themselves or posted to a community. Well, hopefully that makes uh, sources like SCIF meetings important because we don't always write nice things about everybody. We're also yeah. critical. So it's important Probably. to I think know, surface you things about, like that. Um, you wrote about what was it the W Hotel something three sixty projection forget. yeah yeah we brought that on for sure yeah, great it's, it's really I, it's it's overwhelmingly positive stuff right and it's really about it's overwhelmingly about you know the positive signals that we can do to reinforce sort of a three sixty image of a business and yeah. and important stuff like okay who's hosted events here before can I see photos of those events you know one thing we haven't really brought into our platform is like you know links to TikTok and Instagram and so that's something we're excited to explore further where it's just how can we do the research on the planner's behalf so they have it in one spot. And I think just planners knowing who else has worked there before might be the way to go, right? Because then they can have private conversations if they yes. want to talk about the less positive things rather than try to discuss them. Exactly. We don't we don't we don't have ambitions to be a place where, you know, negativity is spread. So so that's really not sort of how the platform is used. But what I like about Slack and why we've doubled down on that rather than building our own thing is that people can DM each other directly. And so there is privacy, you know, available to everyone. Yeah. 
So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the business model, because I think you've just launched a new um, kind of vendor listing premium yeah. feature, right? And I think I remember yeah. us talking maybe a year ago, that you're saying this is a, definitely a planner funded platform, but that seems yeah. to have shifted now. So this is a bit of a pivot, right? Yeah. You know, my background's in B2B SaaS. So I really wanted to make this thing work with B2B SaaS. Um, and, you know, I remember you calling out like, oh, this is interesting. Let's see if it works. <laughs> it did work. We have big companies that pay for sort of a more premium version of our platform, including this RFP tool that we have to service. So we couldn't really offer for free. Um, so we have lots of big companies paying for that. But what basically happened was we launched this thing in December and then in January, everyone started doing major cost cuts. So that's when, and you know, a lot of our customer base are like the big tech companies and everyone was just doing layoffs. And so as we, a lot of these big conversations we were having were paused, I basically started looking at our support tickets and saw that every single week we were getting venues and vendors emailing us, asking if they could advertise. And so just given the state of the market, I was like, now's not the time to be ignoring potential revenue streams. Um, you know, it's not that engineeringly, engineeringly, there's a new word, difficult to, um, to build sort of a paid listings product. And so we did that very quickly and launched it and then basically tested it for a bit and have decided recently to lean into that. And the reality is like, monetizing via advertising, which is basically where we are focused today, that's the proven model, right? That's how Cvent does $200 million a year on their venue marketplace. Um, they're by far the largest player in the space. On the wedding side, that's how the non-wedding wire monetize. So we're leaning into what's proven right now and excited to sort of play with other models, you know, as we do that. Okay. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And I think you know, we've talked a bit on the Skiff meeting site also about how a lot of planners and a lot of maybe academics would kind of ideally want to do conferences where there's no advertisers or no sponsors. But the, the reality is that if you wanted to pay, you know, a conference ticket that's maybe, I don't know, $1,000 right now, but you had no sponsors, it'd probably be 5000 or something like that. It just, it wouldn't make any sense to anybody. So it, it does sort of makes sense that there's ways to do a sponsor-driven uh, product or a sponsor-supported product that is also works for people, right? Because I think that's sort of what the, the market supports. You'd have to really change the market completely to go in another direction. Totally. And the thing is, like, I mean, again, we have 190,000 people using our, our platform every month. Um, they love the product, but the reality is like event planning teams don't get that much budget for subscription and software services. And so it just was um, more practical, practical for us to offer it to them at a low cost or for free and, and finance it another way. Um, I'll make one other comment, which is that, you know, in, in terms of the twists and turns of our company, one thing we did was we spent almost two years spending a lot of our product and engineering resources and energy on an RFP tool. And after spending so much time on this RFP tool of which that was, that is, and continues to be part of our paid platform, um, we basically realized that we, our position is that it's a little cart before the horse because people would issue an RFP, but they still did not have a platform where they could easily find the suppliers that they wanted to RFP. And so we were sort of 
tag, you know, we were sort of needing to double up on like, oh shoot, you need something in Santa Barbara. You know, we had to go out and proactively find, you know, venues that they could RFP so that they could RFP. And so I was like, if this is cart before the horse, let's just take all of the limited resources that we have and focus on being the best search and discovery experience in the world. And once we sort of solve for that, then we go down a layer in sort of that marketplace and, and refocus on RFP, but we'll relaunch it um, next year. Okay. Well, tell us about plans, future plans, kind of near term and, and longer term things. So we have a big product launch that we're really excited about. That's probably going to go live this week or next. So sometime around when this podcast will go live. Um, and the, that product launch is really us more redoing the front end search experience of our site to better allow people to search the really, the depth of data that we have um, for searching venues and vendors. And uh, let me see if I can say this. I think a, a demo or anybody can go to the site and try for themselves. But what it means is that let's say you're searching hotels in New York City. When you run that search on the Vendry, you're not going to just get a set of results that says, hey, here are the business profiles that meet your results. Let's even get more specific, like hotels in Midtown. Um, you are going to get a, a, a set of results that says, hey, here are the business profiles that match. But also here are photos of events that recently happened at hotels in Midtown. And here's news that recently happened about hotels in Midtown. And here are discussions in our community that happened about hotels in Midtown. And here is your team's knowledge base. And here's what, you know, you, whatever, Salesforce have tagged about hotels in Midtown. And here are lists that you've built. So there's like all these different ways that you can sort of, you know, curate and, 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 and source you know, these venues. And we have a really complex and large data graph that we're now allowing users to navigate in a different way on the front end. So I think it sounds more complicated than it is, but it is a new search experience unlike anything anybody in this industry has seen before. Um, it's a bit of a test because it's, you know, launching something new, people know what they know, but we think it's gonna be a pretty big deal. So we're excited about it. Um, in terms of what we're focused on afterwards, you know, I would say the name of the game for us is always, you know, how can we be a better search platform? So as I mentioned with social media, that means net new data sources, right? Like how can we build intelligence in, you know, we need to launch a master planner when you are searching hotels in April, in January in New Orleans, how can we remind the user like, hey, by the way, Mardi Gras, I don't know if I'm getting that right. I think it's Mardi Gras around then is happening, you know, around the time that you're planning this event. So more data, um, a better destination search experience, um, because that's something that isn't really how our platform is built today. Um, and then, you know, revisiting that RFP tool. And we have some interesting ideas around that. Tell us a little bit more about the destination thing, because I want to make sure that that's clear. Um, so, yeah. so you're saying the platform is very much around a specific area or a specific, you know, once you determine the area, I guess, in the time frame, then you can service all this data. And I'm imagining this sort of like a, a Google results kind of feature, but you have all these different things that can kind of pop up in different ways, right? But yeah, when it comes so to destinations, I guess it's a bit more open-ended, right? Exactly. And you can search destinations on the Vendry. So we see big companies sort of putting in inputs like, hey, show me hotels with whatever, 500 rooms, and you don't need to put in a location, but it's not the optimal search experience. So, you know, it, I don't think what I'm going to say here is rocket science, other platforms do it, but the ability to say, Hey, 
Um, show me, you know, I need a hotel with 200 rooms. It needs to be in February. I want the max temperature to be whatever, or the minimum temperature to be 60 degrees. Ideally, you can have direct flights from, you know, New York, Chicago, Dubai, whatever. Um, better if it's a Hilton hotel and, and, and look at results from that perspective, right? Uh, and, and so that's where we can also bring in other contexts like, hey, here's a hotel that matches your search results, but FYI, you know, NFL draft is happening in that city around the same time. And we could return that to the user in a single search result. Yeah, that, that's that fascinating. Way, what flights cost from the destinations you said attendees will be coming from. Yeah, I think uh, Airbnb has been doing similar things, right? When you have this, you know, you don't have to put in the date, so you don't have to put in the destination and you just sort of maybe choose the type of experience that you want. And then it may offer you some options that you weren't really expecting that might actually change your mind, right? It might actually be cheaper if that's like something that's important or other kind of. I'm I'm such a window shopper on Google Google flights. I'm always like, okay, if I wanted to go somewhere this weekend, where could I go for under four hundred dollars? So yeah, Google has that too. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. What about AI? Are you working with AI? Is that part of the plans? Is that something yeah. that excites you? Yeah, we played around with AI a lot, and AI is integrated into a bunch of different features around our site, but not in a way that we have sort of marketed on the front end. Um, so I'm purposely vague there because I don't really want other people to know how we're using it. Um, <laughs> I, Interesting. But, yeah. Would and, that and not, think, you don't think that would give you a, an advantage if somebody's kind of thinking about using the Vendry over other platforms? Like, oh, the Vendry's got, you know, AI in the background. I don't think planners care about AI. Here's, I, I, I think I take a slightly different approach to AI. I think the press cares about AI, right? And so I think... The AI is a hot topic in the press, and that's why every company is rushing to say they have some like AI thing because it gets coverage, and that's great. That's it's a press tactic. I don't think users, I, I do not think users at all care about what like underlying tech is giving them the product or feature that's serving their needs. So I, I think like across the board, it's completely just like a press-driven product marketing activity. And yeah, because I think that we're just not really leaning into, you know, maybe we'll launch some AI features so that you cover it, <laughs> but I won't be, we won't be leaning into some idea that it's AI powered because we think our end users care. I think we care if it serves their needs, not like what the tech stack is. It's interesting because it sounds like this kind of advanced search functionality to me feels very AI like, like the, the the feature of figuring out different direct flights, like a city with yeah. the most direct flights and kind of within certain rates. I see a lot of companies advertising that that seems to be a hot thing at the moment. And that always seems to be, you know, around AI, there seems to be sort of an AI powered feature to that to kind of calculate all these different possibilities in, in a simple way. You know, I studied operations research. Our main, this was 15 years ago, our main, you know, subject area was almost studying flight patterns and like optimizing routes. It's, you know, AI is a very broad, broad word, but I, I don't really think AI is used in that sense. You know, I, again, there's different types of AI, but like one thing that 
will do at some point, but I'm not like urgently doing is basically building an AI search experience where you're like typing in free text and we are delivering you results written in free text. So it's sort of like the chat GPT style. I think it was Expedia launched something like that. Again, I think it was like a nice press hit. I don't think the experience was actually good at all. And from a venue sourcing perspective, as I think about that sort of conversational search experience, I think about Zillow and I'm like, when I'm looking for houses on Zillow, and by the way, this is the caveat that like, we'll launch it at some point, but it's not like I go to Zillow and I crave the ability to type in a sentence. Like, I think that there's search certain searches that have so many different levers that people want to play with and pull that actually having a lot of filters and your ability to like control that way might be better than a conversational experience. Um, but yeah, we use AI in the background more for data parsing. So when we are basically crawling the internet or, um, or getting data that is written in more of a free text form, AI allows us to extract data from that into more, into actually a more structured form. Makes sense. Well, I think it's a very valid uh, view and I'm also like you, I'm, I'm, I see a lot of AI press releases and I just don't really understand. I, I, mean, I don't, I'm not a technical I think person, it's so I don't understand enough. So I don't yeah. play with it. <laughs> and, and I definitely do not think planners would ever like, I mean, you know, somebody's going to disagree, but they care about if it serves their needs. Again, they don't care. Why, why would they care exactly what technology is making that possible? What I will say, what I will say, I think any like larger client should care about is you know, if you're making like a larger software purchase, here, here's where I think a client would care about it. I think they would care, like, let's say that you're doing an RFP for a big event registration platform. When you are choosing a technical partner, you want to know that they are continuously going to be at the forefront. So I think it's less about like, do they have this AI feature or not? But just like, do I have conviction that this team is staying at the forefront of technology? And therefore I can like, you know, be partners with them for 10 years and not need to do, you know, do run a new RFP next year. So I think it's important that technology companies can like give conviction that they're being smart with the newest technologies at all times. Yeah, absolutely. So wanted to go back a little bit to the community question and, and really I wanted to get your views on communities in this industry particularly, because I mean, I see a little bit of what you're doing as an alternative to uh, associations and to different ways that people connect in the industry. Do you, yeah. Is that something that you're intentionally kind of looking at it and kind of positioning yourselves as a, as an alternative to that? I mean, so you see how I've talked about community where I'm like a lot of the way that we've built this community. I mean, we also have events and knowledge sharing and thought leadership, but we've almost seen that a lot of behavior is around really tactical support. And so we've leaned into that tactical support and we lean into it from a product engineering perspective, everything. Um, so I'm not spending time and have no plans, for example, to start thinking about certifications and like advocacy for the industry and all this stuff that I think associations do that is really not in our, you know, focus area. And so I, I, I have to commend like the PCMA team has been great. Them in particular, you know, I'm in constant conversation with them about ways that we can partner, um, I just haven't really gotten to know MPI or, or any of the other organizations very well. Um, and so I guess I would like to say, I feel that the industry has been very receptive to us, which I greatly appreciate as sort of a newcomer. And, and the best analogy I could come up with is, 
Okay, I have no idea how New York Times thought about Twitter when it launched. Maybe I could Google that and find some something about it. But like, I think it's easy to look at somebody like a competitor. And so maybe New York Times is like Twitter competitor. But like, I think my general approach is to be partnership oriented. And I'm sure that New York Times could now look at Twitter as like an amplifier of their content, right? And I would hope that associations or others in the industry would A, know that we're very partnership oriented, we're trying to do something different. And to that extent, like there are certain areas we have no interest in playing. And so how can we be better partners? And I think we've some, seen some of that like already come to life. We really have no plans to charge for membership anytime soon. We might just like LinkedIn has LinkedIn Pro, like, you know, maybe one day we'll launch something like that. Um, but again, if we're going to launch something like that, we have to believe that the revenue opportunity is big enough to to justify the effort. And and right now, I don't know that it is. Okay, it sounds like you're you're looking or at least considering different ways to partner with different groups, but uh, totally. you're not excluding anything, right? Totally, because there's areas that we just don't want to play, and and you know, I care a lot about the members of the community we've created, and you know, if they can get value elsewhere, you know would love to show them that value. Excellent. I share the content with them. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, Daphne, it's been fascinating learning about your journey and uh, the Ventry's journey. I think uh, you've shared some of your um, thoughts on, on kind of where you want it to go. Is there any specific place that you'd like, you know, kind of a North Star that, you, that you're focusing on that you, you think would be the real test of the Vendry kind of really making it? I guess here's my barometer for success. Every time somebody in our community posts, hey, I need a venue or vendor, I run that search on the Vendry. And one day we will have a perfect set of results for exactly what they needed. And, you know, we're, we're getting closer and closer, but we still have a long way to go. Both geographic coverage and just the nature, right? Like right now you can't search for great places to host a business brunch in Chicago, right? There's just like, there continue to be more and more, you know, types of searches that we could do a better job of. And, and we sort of know our roadmap, but just got to keep working on it. Big ask. So hopefully uh, keep, keep improving. Definitely great. And I'd love to get a recommendation for someone else to be on the podcast because you obviously have a big community. You meet a lot of people and a lot of interesting planners. So uh, who do you think would be a good guest on our podcast? So there's a gentleman that I've gotten to know because I reached out to him cold on LinkedIn, which is how a lot of my industry relationships started. And I think he has one of the coolest jobs out there and he's not really on, you know, the circuit. So John Barker, um, SVP of global events at the NFL, Super Bowl draft, all of that sort of under his um, responsibility. And I feel like a lot of people would just love to know, you know, what's top of mind for him. So maybe we can get him on. That would be great. Great recommendation. Uh, appreciate it. Daphne, it's been a pleasure. Uh, we're always good to talk to you. And I think you'll you'll be joining us on stage at the SCIF Meetings Forum. So uh, hopefully we'll continue some of this conversation with, uh, with the rest of the panelists as well. And I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for being on the show today. Awesome. Thank you, Miguel.